Hi there, everyone. Welcome to the Awakening Report. I'm your host, Doug Hamp. Excited as ever to be studying the Word, to go through God's Word. It is so exciting. And I'll tell you, when you study the Word, things begin to open up for you intellectually. They begin to open up for you spiritually, emotionally. Uh, the, the, the possibilities are endless, and that's why I just love the Word of God. And tonight we have a very special guest. We have Gary Wayne with us, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And when I heard about his book, I got really excited because it's kind of similar to a book that I wrote, uh, Corrupting the Image. And I've been checking out his book, and it's just amazing. I mean, this thing is just jam-packed full of information. And it's always kind of fun when you come to similar conclusions, but I'm excited to hear it from him, uh, some of these conclusions. So let's welcome Gary Wayne. Hey, Gary. Hey, so happy to be here tonight with you, Doug, and uh, really looking forward to the show and you know, wherever, uh, you know, the Lord leads the conversation, I think it's going to be fun. And I think we're going to talk about some things that, you know, your audience is just going to uh, enjoy and hopefully raise some more curiosity on some things. I'm sure it will. And just to let people know, if you have questions, you can put those in the live chat. I will be monitoring that and we'll get those questions to Gary so that he can uh, he can answer them. So, Gary, you wrote the Genesis 6 conspiracy. Obviously, the big thing about Genesis chapter 6 is we have these things called Nephilim, right? And we have the sons of God. But, you know, perusing your book, you've gone so much further. You've gone into the Illuminati. You've gone into all kinds of things in the ancient world, and you've put together this package that does more than just tell us about these giants, but it tells us about really this conspiracy that you see that started back in the day. And I'm really excited to hear about this. And just, you know, how did you get into this? What was it that led you to write this book? You know, there's usually some burning desire that an author has, and then he just has to write the book for some reason. Uh, You know, I've written a couple because somebody, you know, rub me the wrong way and I'm like doc God I'm gonna write a book on that <laughs> you know and uh you that that kind of got you into this well I'm a prophecy buff and that was what led it led me into it and you know as I was cataloging all the different prophecy narratives in the bible and a lot of the doctrine narratives so that I could assemble all of the verses together these darn nuffling keep showing up you know right from genesis 6 and then after the flood with, you know, uh, people like the Raphaim and the Anakim and the Avim and on and on and on. And then, you know, when I looked at what Jesus had said about the signs of the end time and that his second coming would be like the days of Noah, uh, that really, you know, was tweaking my interest. How do I connect that? And then, you know, when you understand, as what most people in this audience will understand, is that, you know, there's demons, and there's the abyss, and there's the war in heaven, and fallen angels talked about in Revelation. So I just wanted to do a short, small, easy little book, the first one to cut my craft on, so to speak, and, uh, you know, and, and just connect the dots on that. But along the way, things changed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, how many pages is your book? I mean, this is not a short little easy kind of book, but this no, is a kind of monstrosity. It's a little over 800 pages, so wow. it's a large book, and I weeded that down from about 1,150 pages uh, just to try and get it published because I knew it was going to be too large. But over 100 pages and more like 120 pages or so are endnotes uh, okay. because, again, what I wanted to do was not speculate 
significantly. And I mean, everybody's going to have to connect some dots, and there's going to be a little bit of speculation here or there. But for the most part, I wanted to let the research speak for itself and connect that to what it says in the Bible and measure everything against what I collected against uh, what is written in the Bible. And so what the great thing is, not only do a lot of people like the book because it connects all the dots over 6,000 years, but they also know where I got my research from. Mm-hmm. And it's all there in the bibliography and in the end notes. So they can verify and dig further if that's what they want to do. So, yes, it is a long book, but so it doesn't scare people in terms of it. Um, I, you know, I just <laughs> like to say that it each chapter averages about six or seven pages once you factor out the end notes. Okay. And, so, and every story uh, right from chapter one is a story within a story that leads into the next chapter that will keep coming up as the book, as the book unfolds so that you can go back and reread if you need it and that you can leave it and come back as much as you want. So it's designed to be able to do that. And you have to read it at a pace that's going to make some sense for you because I'll guarantee you if somebody tries to take like 15 chapters in a dose, they're just they're not going to remember much because there's just so much information that's coming at you. And it comes at you right through to the end of the last chapter. So be patient with it and do it as you can digest it. And (laughs) it has a lot of information, no doubt about it. Now, you consider yourself a contrarian. Uh, What do you mean by that? What what does that phrase mean for you? And how should that help us understand what you did in the book? Yeah, certainly everybody would understand a contrarian as being against the status quo or what the common theology or accepted doctrines are, which is part of it. Um, Not that I'm trying to rewrite everything in the Bible. It's just that I take it another step further and say, I don't accept anything that anybody says unless I can verify it. Right. Whether it's in the Bible or through outside sources. And so when I, when I find I do that, I can come at it quite objectively and without influence, and then if I want to look at what the other conclusions are afterwards, I can. But what it does do is lead to some perhaps different conclusions. Mm-hmm. Now, have you, you know, believed in the Nephilim or the giants since you were for a first Christian, or is this something that took time to kind of discover and to ease into? Well, you know, when I was young, I was raised Baptist. So again, that's a literal application, So, which I am. I'm not into any sort of allegory because that is part of Gnosticism and secret societies and their approach to understanding the Bible. Uh, so I'm a literalist, and they were talked about giants. I didn't spend much time on it, um, as most churches don't seem to. Uh, so I knew they were there, um, and I thought it was interesting when I was younger, but it didn't really resonate with me. Uh, but when I had, got serious about doing the research on the Bible and I came back after Uh, some books that are read by Hal Lindsey that just sort of challenged my, you know, uh, current disposition, you know, that that cognizant dissonance that people like to talk about, where I'd been brainwashed through school, but now I'm reading something that Hal Lindsey is saying that I think is probably true, but it, it doesn't stand with the status quo of what I had sort of accepted through school. Um, and so that sort of process led me to say, let me just start reading it on my own and verify what Hal is talking about. And it just opened my eyes and started to make so much sense in so many different areas. Now, I had to read the Bible a lot to do that. And then I had to start documenting it and connecting the dots to really see some things that, you know, were just sort of glazing over my head before. So when you come to Genesis chapter 6, and it says that there were that there were the sons of God, they were, ha- you know, having relations with women, and they they 
created, but begat or you know procreated this yep. hybrid race. Yeah. Uh, what was like kind of the big red flag that you're like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense, or was it just, well, yeah, and then you just kind of went further? Well, it was it was interesting because you know you have fallen angels having sex with human females. If you read the Sons of God, as I do, as uh, as as angels, uh, which is uh, just a crazy sort of thing once it sort of settles into your thought process. And that didn't sit very well with me. And then the idea, okay, now they produce giants. Okay, how supernatural were these beings? Because we're given very stingy, a very stingy amount of information about them in Genesis 6, that depending on which translation that you're going to read, they're either the heroes of old or the men of renown and or the mighty ones, right? And uh, so, you know, what does that mean? And what else did they receive from the angels? And then this, this, concept where they kept coming up and they were looked at as giants and you know in, in the exodus uh you know the israelites were referring to themselves as grasshoppers or insects to the size of the anakim and that is just sort of said hey there's this is this is jarring this is not harmonious with you know a world view that i used to be comfortable with and i needed to know more about it and uh, so that combined with prophecy when connecting some dots on it um you know just started to make me dig in in deeper on it but you know what was even more um just i guess just confabulating i guess is, is a better word for it was is i had a friend uh who said you know with what you're dealing with he says you need to get you need to get this book by albert Mackey, and um you know, most Christians won't know who Albert Mackey is, well, but he was an adept in Freemasonry, uh, which was very surprising that somebody would recommend this to me. And uh, he wrote a book called The History of Freemasonry. And what he did in the 1800s, and he's up there with Pike as one of the great sort of patriarchs of, of uh, Freemasonry and defining um, what it's all about, is is I got, he, he logged all of their legends and or their oral uh, traditions that were all part of the Polychronicon, but this is a specific book just on the legends of uh, Freemasonry. It doesn't have all the information that they would have in the Polychronicon, but it has a lot of it. And I was absolutely shocked that they took their creation, their brotherhood, and I call them a snake brotherhood in the uh, in the book um, because. They are a snake brotherhood, um, in essence, and I can explain that a little bit later. But they take their creation not only back to the time of Nimrod, but before the flood, which, again, just I, I would never have dreamt that. And they took their creation back to some interesting patriarchs of the Bible. Uh, and Enoch would be one of them, except that it's not Enoch of the Seth line, or the Enoch son of Jared, it is Enoch son of Cain, and to Lamech, but again, not Lamech, you know, of the Sethian line, Lamech of the Cainite line, and Tubal Cain as one of their greatest patriarchs and artificers of metals, and Jubal, and Jubal, and Nama, all names that were written in the book, and so that just absolutely, you know, set me on to a whole different Sort of exploration as to what was going on in prehistory and, and how that flowed through 
to our modern times and how it affects um, the end time. And what they what they believe is that Adam was taught the seven sacred sciences in Eden. And uh, so Adam then passes this on to both of his sons, Abel and Cain. But, of course, Cain murders Abel. And then he's ostracized. And then Adam will go on and teach Seth. Now, Seth carries on with the seven sacred sciences. And Josephus will talk about this as well. Um, so I like to use him as kind of a parallel uh, on this period, as well as, well as so many other uh, sources. But Josephus is very, very important. And so the Sethians still practice the sciences, but focus a little bit more on astronomy because they're an, ag an agrarian farming uh, community, and, and they need that for the seasons and things. And that makes some sense. And they, and they develop the sciences in a way that is for the good of humankind and in a way that honors God uh, and respects God and gives them credit for everything, including the creation of everything. But Cain, on the other hand, never forgives God for being ostracized and never repents. Now, this is now coming from the Freemasonic side and what he does in Josephus. And so what he now does is he starts to take these sciences and he does something different with them as he's teaching them to Enoch, his son. And he is developing it in a, in a way that is going to use the science not for the good of humankind, not to respect God, but to dishonor God, to degrade God, not give him credit for anything and not recognize him as the God of the universe. Right? So oh. the total opposite, sort of what science does today. So you can see how that has a flow through as I take that concept throughout the book as well and so out of that they start to develop this knowledge and it starts to develop rapidly over some of the generations and they need to write this down and so the masons and other uh, oriental sources will credit enoch as inventing hieroglyphs and what he does is writes 36,525 books on the knowledge of this that he's learning as well as the knowledge that's going to come from uh, the, the watchers, uh, the illicit knowledge from heaven. And he's going to store this knowledge in nine vaults stacked on top of each other that are going to be hidden under the pyramids for when the flood comes. But with that sort of development, what they start to do is, is they have to create a society and a religion to keep this from the poor, right? Because knowledge and, and Gnosticism and secret societies is not about the poor. It's because they don't deserve the knowledge. They don't deserve to be saved or reincarnated in their belief system. It's only for the elite and the royal bloodlines, right? So they develop sun-worshipping mysticism, uh, Enoch does, and it spreads all throughout the Canaanite lines, right? And the, this is going to set up a pantheon of gods, which are the fallen angels and the watchers and the demigods underneath later on. And they're also going to utilize uh, secret societies at that time. And they're going to use that to develop certain aspects of the seven sciences, right? And so this becomes the beginning of Freemasonry, because even though it might go through mystery schools in the beginning, those are still secret societies and initiated societies, which uh, the, Mason, the, the ancient Masons and the modern Masons all take their... Um, heritage back to. 
So that, that flows down through history. So it's interesting now that they you find out that Freemasonry believes in the flood. They believe in uh, what it's written in Genesis, although they have additional information that they, they think makes their vision of the religion um, more accurate or more uh, true. And their view is, is that our God is an evil God. And their God, which is Satan, I don't like to give them credit as Lucifer, even though they call him Lucifer, um, is the good God that is helping humankind. And he's an equal to uh, the God of the Bible. And so that's this good and evil duality in Gnosticism that you're probably quite familiar with in polytheism, as well as the duality of the, the, of the mother goddess and the male goddess. So this is the beginning, and this was very, very shocking to me that Freemasonry takes their history back, talks about the same patriarchs, does a lot mm -hmm. of fusing of the two Enochs, and are probably most responsible for people being confused about Enoch, and that when they talk about Enoch, people naturally think they're talking about Enoch of the Sethian line, and typically they're not. Mm -hmm. You know, just just as, you know, um, the amount of books that Enoch, son of Cain, writes is a solar uh, sun-worshipping numbers, 36,525, right? And uh, that's no coincidence, because they use numerology as numer mysticism in everything that they do. So all of a sudden now, I had to learn as much as I could about secret societies and how that all fit in, because yeah. they talk about the Nephilim, they talk about Nimrod, they talk about giants, they talk about everything that the Bible gives us some information on, but we don't have the rest of the story. Now, do you think any of their stuff is credible? I mean, obviously they've drawn the wrong conclusions, but could some of their, their details and facts be somewhat accurate? Well, I think some of them are. Um, and again, what I do, though, is, is I like to understand where it varies from Scripture. And, and we'll, if, if I bring it up in the book, we'll note that that varies from Scripture. But the important thing to remember is, is it's what they believe, and it's what mm -hmm. they're doing with that information. And so it's, it's, it's important to get into their shoes so you can understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, and therefore how they're doing it. And then you need to do you need to take from that whatever you need to decide how that affects you. That's really interesting. I, I never, I mean, I've I've known about you know the the secret societies, but I didn't know that they took it back to Cain. That's yeah. very interesting. That his whole rationale is that he's angry at God. You know, yeah. he's never gotten over that incident, even though God showed him mercy. Right? Yeah. God didn't just kill him, and so God allows this. I mean, I I just have to happen to wonder. I'm like, is you know, is their version of of Cain's feelings? Could those be true? You know, obviously Cain was wrong about what he said about God, but yeah. could it be that, you know, that's actually a, a correct account of, of Cain's reaction? I mean, that's quite interesting. They, they, as, and you have to understand that Gnosticism is the religion of Freemasonry or Rosicrucianism, uh, which goes back to Zoroastrianism and so many of these other ancient religions. And today it's, it's a cosmology of all of these religions because they, they are the same religion that goes back in their belief system to Enoch. And they don't even track in their writings on how that spreads around the world after Babel. And so it's important to understand, though, that um, they... What was the question again? It was... Um, well, I just find it really interesting that... that right. I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if, if Cain may actually have felt they, that way. That's what I'm wondering. Well, they've reinvented him. Okay. 
right, is what they do. And so, again, and that's why I was making that connection back to Gnosticism before I lost myself in my own thoughts, um, is that where you have the seed of the serpent um, theory that a lot of people, uh, some people are for and some people are against, and, and I know how they get there, but it's very tenuous biblically to get there, and I'm not, I don't go there. I'm more the seed of the serpent comes through Genesis 6, like, that's my belief, not through Cain. But they reinvent Cain as being either the son of uh, fallen angels and Eve, Satan and Eve, or Lilith and Satan. Uh, and again, there, there are Gospels for each of those in Gnosticism. And so they believe that Cain was acquired uh, by Adam and Eve to raise. Hence his name, right? The word kana yeah, is the word to buy something, to acquire something. So that's the yeah. idea. Very, very similar in, 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 in how that is transliterated. Slightly different, but sounds the same. And just as, you know, begotten, when he begots her son in, in the Bible, that could be translated as acquired as well. So that's the tenuous connection you could possibly make. But then you have to go into allegory of the Eden account to justify that into a sexual act, right? That's how mm -hmm. they do it with the Bible. And that's why I stay away from the allegorical aspect, especially mm -hmm. after understanding how they define and their lens that they use to, to look at the Bible. And so they make him as a demigod, like as a form of Nephilim, and that he is superior to Abel. And they would say that, his offering was not accepted by God uh, because he's already a God, mm. which makes no sense in my mind and my viewpoint and how you even get there from saying that, um, because even if he's a demigod, it doesn't raise him to be as high as God. But in their belief, it's, they, it's a pantheon of gods. There's many gods, right? And so uh, Cain would be a, a god in this case, I would think, or demigod by definition. But and but I also you know don't think that. They looked at him that he actually, uh, because there's a lot of writing on this, that he actually murdered Abel. They look at it that because that is, an, again, an allegory where that's just talking about his natural death, where his blood is soaked up by the ground and he dies, right? So they, they rationalize their way through it. And so now Cain becomes this rebellious, godlike figure who is trying to develop the knowledge that God is preventing him from developing, and God is the evil God. So you can see how that all of a sudden just totally inverts, becomes inside and out. And that is core to understanding how they're bringing about the end time and the deceptions that are going to happen in the end time. Because everything will be turned upside down and inside out. Yep. I remember reading uh, Albert Pike was saying, you know, that Adonai is the equal to Satan or Lucifer. And yep. he Adonai is the evil God. You know, he's the God of darkness. and Satan or Lucifer is the god of light. Yep. Uh, it's unfortunate that they, uh, the the Greek translation of the word Helel uh, became Phosphoros, and then of course that made its way into Latin as Lucifer, Lucifer. Yep. and then of course in English. But um, fascinating stuff. <laughs> this is, is great. Keep going. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> so okay. Let, let's let's go back well, to the giants, though. Let's go back yeah, to the giants. Okay. So you kind of get to Genesis six. I mean, because that's obviously yeah. the title of your book, yeah. right? And, and again, that's where I started, too. When I wrote Corrupting Image, I thought, I'm just going to write about the Nephilim, right? But then I got into all these other things. 
I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, and it took me in a number of different paths and I had to carefully select which ones will I talk about. And yep. it sounds like, you know, you did, you had that same dilemma and, and you've just put it all together in such an incredible package. I, I really appreciate that. So kind of get us from, you know, we, we, we have Cain here, according to the, mm -hmm. the, you know, esoteric sources. How do we get to Genesis chapter six? How does that fit in their perspective? So Cain then moves over and he is part of the civilizing nature to the uh, nomads uh, that are the hunters and gatherers. Although they've been working with the gods for a while to uh, build some cities and do work for the gods, he is now going to be the great civilizer and be king over uh, these hunters and gatherers. And so um, he starts a royal bloodline of kings. And so that's why they believe that the early kings in Genesis are Canaanite kings um, and that uh, this is a royal bloodline that now prepares the people for day six. And with the religion that is being imposed on them, that they are ready to accept what is going to be happening in uh, Genesis six. And so because Cain is from the gods, and either female or another god to, to create them, depending whether it's Lilith or Eve that you want to use in their Gospels, then the daughters that are going to go and offer themselves on Mount Hermon, as Enoch explains where it happens, um, is just part of an overall accepted belief system because their ruling class of kings descended from the gods as another form of Nephilim. And so they offer themselves and it's nothing new. And so the daughters of Mm. Uh, okay. are the daughters of Cain, right? Okay, so just to clarify that point, so when the when the sons of God, these fallen angels, come down, they're already conditioned, according to these sources, they're already conditioned to yes. think that these are from the line of Cain, yep. and because Cain already is a god, yes. then this is just business as usual. There's nothing new here. Yep. More of the same, just another... Okay. Uh, set of rejuvenation of the bloodlines of from from the the, the immortals. Now, and, do you think do you think that that's actually true that people thought that, or do you think that that's just how the Gnostic sources have reinvented this thing? Well, that's certainly what they believe, right? Okay. That's and and that's how you arrive at uh, this being sort of a natural progression. And uh, so, whether or not you believe that uh, the Eden account is the same as the Genesis one account, they would look at that differently right they would say no there was four races before eden and this adam account is a is a, is a diff different account for sure mm -hmm. um just to keep it in line in terms of how they get from point a to point b okay yeah. okay <clears throat> so okay so so they think this is just business as, as usual the sons of god fallen angels demons whatever you call them they come down they have relations with women, and now we have this this new offspring, this new progeny. Yes. And, what happens and they, then? Yeah, so they become the demigods, right? And these are giants, and they usurp kingship, uh, either in partnership with or actually take over from the uh, Canaanites, and the Canaanites take more of a role as the priesthood. So Enoch is also known as Thoth in a lot of uh, 
legends and is the same as Mercury and so many other names. And I'll give all of those names in, in the book. So he's kind of the wisdom figure uh, of a god. And so if you look at antediluvian, and for people who may not know what that word is, that's before the flood, just a fancy word that uh, I like to use, antediluvian. Um, they don't understand the organizational structure and what polytheists believe was going on before the flood. Let me just quickly describe it. So you have, and Enoch will give some backup on this. Um, you will have arguably four to nine civilizations going on in the antediluvian epoch. Nine's more of a... Uh, an Asgard or Norse mythology up to nine and that's what you see with the Game of Thrones you have nine of them that's Norse mythology uh, but typically it's four to seven and that matches up with the seven watchers out of Enoch right and so they believe that uh, and Enoch seems to suggest that there are seven cult centers of civilizations in the antediluvian world and each of them will have their own temples and they'll be ruled over by a specific watcher and a pantheon sent down you know and in the polytheist belief they'll name some of those civilizations like sumeria would be one uh pre-flood greece would be another one um egypt would be another one atlantis is another one uh and mu would be another one so that's you kind of quickly get the seven there's probably one in uh, Russia as well that you could include in that there's the that's either Asgard or it's another one but Asgard might be another one as well as you start to link the polytheist mythology and that's what's really interesting about when I start getting into my book is is that they're all telling the same story on the polytheist side just from a different sort of civilization or culture perspective and even more importantly you learn very quickly that they're telling the same story as the Bible is, but from a polytheist perspective or lens, as opposed to a monotheist perspective and lens. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you get into whether it's Atlantis or the Anunnaki or the Detria or the Azura or the Chinese uh, Mayatot, uh, or the thousands of names for giants around the world, you'll quickly understand that they're all telling the same story about gods as we would understand them as fallen angels, going to human females and creating demigods, right? And if you take the name hero, which is another way some of the translations will describe uh, mighty ones and, and men of renown or heroes of old, hero is a word that is used in Greek mythology for Hercules or Theseus or uh, any of the the... the the great titans uh, these are the same demigods and here on the ancient world and not just in greece is defined as the offspring of a human female and a god right hmm. so when you hear about superheroes today it's again keeping that sort of mythology going and superman's even got that red s on it which looks like a snake which is like the red dragon or the red serpent which is superman it's got an inverted uh, pyramid and it's got yellow light in there for knowledge and for the sun worshiping and he's also the son of El which is just you know unbelievable uh, imagery being thrown in there for Superman just to do on a quick rant on that but this organization that's set up you now have in the antediluvian world in these different um, civilizations you have a king which is a Nephilim 
that's the ruler. You have the priest or the magi, and that's reflected in the allegories of polytheism, as in like the Lord of the Rings with the wizards, or Harry Potter, or Merlin, which is a title for a wizard, or a magi coming out of Chaldea. This is the imagery of the priest of polytheism. Okay? That's kept alive. So you have the king matched up with a watcher and with a priest, right? Now you've got everything being tied together here in terms of why this fuses together in Genesis 6, and they now turn to enslave humankind and to corrupt the whole world. So they're going to impose this polytheist religion on all the peoples of the world, and even including the descendants of Adam, and I think Josephus will uh, say that's either Genesis, generation six or seven, uh, where all of them now start to become corrupted and start to intermarry with the descendants of Cain who have corrupted bloodline. And the seven sciences are developing at a very rapid race because they have the assistance of the fallen angels, right? And what are what are those science? What are those seven sciences? Well, they're they're going to be a little bit sort of mundane, but understand it's it is the basis of all knowledge, and then it's how they develop it and how they get into some of the great sciences. And and I'll just uh, and I'll define that. But I just want to say before I give the names on that is is that they believe, and that's why you see this mythology with Atlantis and so many other of the mythologies and the entertainment out there, is that that society had raised their level of technology to a level that's as great as we have today or even greater. Okay, So when you now say, link that up with uh, Jesus talking about the days of Noah, then it, if that's true, and if you can take that right across, then their technology had to be at least what it's at today. And if we're not yet in the end time, and our knowledge and technology is still increasing, you can imagine what their technology might be. And that's why you see, especially in, a, in modern Atlantis mythology, you have spaceships and things like that entering into that mythology. So the main, the seven sciences are, first of all, you have grammar, you know, so that you can, um, uh, you know, learn to write. Right. So it's a basic concept. You've got to build a language, a written language. You have rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion. And you have dialectics, which is also part of discernment as well. And so these three will come together to develop something that everybody in the audience will understand. Uh, they'll develop a new advanced science out of that called philosophy. And when you talk about the Greek philosophies or philosophy in university that everybody's brainwashed with, this is a philosophy that is going to guide everything, including the sciences. And it allows, and it acts as the arbitrator between the sciences. It connects the sciences, makes them go in the same direction and arbitrate. So that's why they look at that as superior, but that is coming out of the first three sciences. Then, of course, you have arithmetic, right? Because to do science, you have to you have to have arithmetic. And also, before I move on, arts in the ancient world was the same meaning as science. So arts and sciences, and they're still connected today in the university. That's because they come from the same meaning out of history. And of course, you have the famous fifth one. It's famous because not only it's got to do with math, but it's the other name that they like to call it. So the fifth science is geometry. But in the craft of Freemasonry and secret societies, 
the fifth science is called masonry hmm. and is also the craft that Jubel develops in their system, Son of Lamech, right? Just as Jubel develops music, okay, which is part of the seven sacred sciences. It's actually the next science the, uh, called music. And, of course, music requires uh, um, mysticism in it, and not mysticism, but numerology in it. And combined, they kind of have a mystical within the craft uh, numerical music mysticism, not to be confused with number mysticism. Um, and that comes down through Pythagoras. And then the last one, of course, is astronomy, which, of course, where astrology comes from. Right. So these are the these are the sciences that combine. And with the guidance of philosophy, they start to develop alchemy and the absolute science, which they believe in the craft at that time. And as what they have today could absolutely destroy everything. I mean, it is a power that they say, who knows whether it's true, makes nuclear bombs small by comparison. And this is why this knowledge has to be held in secret societies, and you have to be initiated into it. Um, and it's actually, you know, it, you, in the beginning, it's it's more like brainwashing as you go up the different levels, right, to the adept level, where you're going to be indoctrinated into Luciferic uh, doctrine. But they want to keep it secret from the mundane, or what they really are talking about is is the non-pure bloods. Mm. Non-pure, as in, not related to Cain, not related to Nephilim, or yeah, they don't. Well, okay. they look at the, as it comes down through history that uh, you are that they are the uh, and they have the genealogy. So they say of um, their genealogies that will link back to the Nephilim and the fallen angels. And so, um, typically, when you talk about the kingships, this is this is something that crosses the flood, right? So not only does the idea of what they did in the antediluvian epoch across the flood, but so do the Nephilim. And we're not told how in the Bible, we're just told both before and after, right? And then we know they show up after the flood. So we're not told how that happens. But also what crosses is the sun-worshipping bull cult mysticism invented by Enoch somehow crosses the flood. And so the secret societies in the organization cross the flood. Hmm. And, this, and the science, before we get across the flood, develops to such a level that you can imagine DNA manipulation as a possibility because we can do it. And so now all of a sudden you have all of these fantastic beings that everybody used to think and were brought up to think were part of imagination whether it's the centaurs or Pegasus or Chimeras and on and on and on, elephant-headed uh, gods out of India. Um, and it, it's, but it's quite common in polytheism that these different types of animals were created. So I don't think that when the Bible talks about corruption, it's that it's just violence. I think the human DNA has been corrupted through the intermarriage after the sixth generation of even the Adamites. I think the plants have had their genomes changed. I think all sorts of other animals are being changed, and it makes sense that they would do it if you follow their belief system because they're trying to degrade God. They're trying to perhaps improve on what they, they, they know God did, and they're trying to lead people away from God. Right. So it's all part of the belief system. And this is the regime and the organization 
that corrupts the whole world. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I one thing that I kind of touched on in my book was uh, Genesis 3.15, where you have the prophecy there of the two seeds. What Any perspective on that? Yeah, it's, it's the seed of the serpent, uh, and something that we talked a little bit about earlier, and I believe that is a prophecy of the seed of the serpent coming through in Genesis 6. Mm. So maybe let me explain how I get there. Please, um, yeah. So, because there's a lot of theories on what that means, and it, sure. is, is it literal, is it uh, theological, is it allegorical? Uh, I believe it's literal. And when we look at who were the who are the watchers that, that Enoch is talking about? They're seraphim angels. And uh, there are different orders of angels, and there are different orders of seraphim angels. And in, in Isaiah 6, that's the only place where we find seraphim, and depending on what translation, it might just say seraph. But if you take that back to Hebrew, now we're talking about a six-winged angel, right, that... Uh, is in the throne of God, uh, and obviously there's a lot of angels, but that's what it's taking it back to. And it's a, it's a serpent-like angel, um, and also related to a fiery as, uh, serpent as well. And all, I think all sort of defining the creation of angels in the beginning on how they're created through fire out of nothing. But they have this connection to the serpent. And if you take that now back to Numbers, I think in 21, and you have that interesting account that uh, is happening in the Exodus, and the serpents, the venomous serpents, are attacking um, the Israelites for their uh, stiff-necked, rebellious nature that needs to be reeled in. Um, and then Moses is instructed by God to um, put a uh, image or a, uh, a brass uh, snake's head on top of a pole. And it's a fiery snake. Now, what's interesting when you look at serpent in the translation, and I'm using King James here now, and where it comes from, is every translation in there, except for the snake, the fiery snake going on the pole, is Nakash. But the one on the pole is Seraph. Right, which is connected, mm -hmm. and if you look that up in the, as you know, if you look that up in in the Hebrew library, you have about three different versions of seraph, and they're all connected, right, as seraphim. Right? Yeah. So you have this connection to this snake-like look, and when you get into the Gnostic Gospels as a parallel description of an account, they describe what the Watchers look like. And the Watchers had these long protruding chins. They had slanted eyes, uh, narrow high cheekbones, and, and they looked like a viper, right? And now when we look at all of the accounts out of prehistory, and even after the flood, you have kings and all the gods pretty much looking like snakes, right? Some sort of serpent god or a feathered serpent as a, in Pesicatel out of uh, Central America. But they all have this unifying look around the world and I think that is kind of accurate and in other accounts and you will find that the Nephilim have the face of a viper as well because they look like their parents right mm. and 
again, in other accounts, they'll have the same type of descriptions, not quite the same. And of course, they're a physical nature as opposed to a spiritual nature. Um, uh, although angels do take another form in this world, because we know that from what the Bible tells us and the examples of what's written about angels in several different types of descriptions. And we know that Satan is a serpent and a dragon, right? And so he is obviously seraphim as well as cherubim. And he may even be in the high priest of the, of the uh, council of God before he uh, is caught in his rebellion because he has these nine jewels, whereas the priest of Israel has the 12 jewels, right? And it's kind of interesting numbers there as well. But um, he, is, he is a serpent and a dragon. And if you put wings on a serpent, you have a dragon. So you have these seraphim angels as this winged sort of dragon, just as if you put wings on the serpent of Eden, um, you, you have a, another type of uh, animal dragon in this kingdom because we understand the snake there isn't uh, as what we would know it in prehistory, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because after the Eden incident, he can't speak anymore, right? And he has to crawl on the ground, so he loses its limbs, whether those are legs and or wings, we don't know, and there could have been many different kinds of snakes. And if that's the case, then some of the arms could have been wings and you could have had actually a animal serpent before Eden. Um, and again, that's just why you would see that in polytheism again, right? That's it, interesting. Yeah. And, and just one little note of that is the word Nachash is related to the word Nachoshet, which is related, which is the word bronze. So you, yeah. that's also the idea of a shining something or other. Yes. You know, so the word Saraf, which is, of course, the, it's, it's the burning. It just means to burn. So the Seraphim are the burning ones. Angels are burning ones. In fact, they are all ministers of fire. Yep. So it's really amazing how you've, you've brought all these things together. That's really great. Yeah, that's, you know, one of the things I try and do throughout the book is I like to connect the dots. And, um, but I, I, I do have to do it from a biblical basis, right? Uh, otherwise, it's, it's going in a direction that would be misleading. And so if I do talk about it, and I'm not linking it back to what's in the Bible, then I'm talking about this is what they believe. It may not be in the Bible, but that's what they believe. And it's important to distinguish the two. So now you have this, these horrible Nephilim that have the face of a viper, right? Because they look just like them in the first generations. And they were awesome, ugly beasts. Uh, and they weren't just eight feet tall. They, uh, they, I believe they were probably 20 to 40 feet tall, depending on which uh, historian and theologian that you may, may be referencing on that. Some people think they're 400 feet. They're using L out of uh, measurement of L's out of Enoch. But nobody really knows what that measurement is as best as I can tell. But I also know that when you're measuring cubits out of prehistory, you should be very careful who you're applying a cubit measurement to. And what I mean by that is there's two measurements of cubits. There's a royal cubit and there's a common cubit. And a common cubit would be 18 inches and a royal cubit would be 21 inches. So if you understand from what I've been talking about a little bit earlier that they were the kings, so they would be the royal bloodlines, that they mm -hmm. would be measured from a royal cubit. So that would take Goliath um, from, say, eight feet to nine feet that some people will estimate, or if you use the, the measurements of cubits out of the uh, Bible, it could take them as high as 10 and a half to 11 feet. Yeah, that's what I got. You know, I, I got to go to the British Museum and look at the Egyptian royal cubit, uh -huh. and it was it was 20.63 inches. I got to measure it. It was really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. 
Yeah, that's. Uh... And again, if now if you look at Og's bed, right, mm-hmm. which is about 13 feet long, and then you think, well, then Og was got to be, you know, 11, 12 feet long or in height. Well, I, I, as, I estimated about as 15. As 15. So, yeah, yeah, 15, so. just about 15 feet, three inches or so. Sure. And and so, like, I think the original ones were larger. And uh, so they may have been as as big as twenty to 30, to uh, forty feet, depending on who you who, who you read read from. But certainly they were monsters, just by what Og was. And you know, look how many hundred years after they were talking about Goliath, and he's still probably you know ten to eleven feet tall. And they were not from again other sources, uh, not out of the Bible, but they were not just tall and gangly. They are known from other sources that the average human has a three to one uh, height to width ratio on average. But the Nephilim were two to one. So they're extremely wider. So these are muscular monsters with the face of a snake and from the word an act, you get longer neck. So they also had a longer neck, bigger elongated skull. That would be part of the look. Uh, of that serpent look, and now you start to see these monsters. Even when they spoke, it would be like uh, they talk about in Greek mythology when Atlas spoke like from the bowels of a mountain, right, just vibrating out. So they were, as Josephus talks about, an attack on the senses. Mm. And they were fleet of foot. They weren't just stumbling around. They Their hand speed and dexterity and their foot speed and dexterity were better than humankind so these were powerful military monsters who easily usurped control over the average human of that time mm-hmm. and wow. and now you have noah who's out there speaking against them <laughs> and uh, josephus even talks about how their tombs are still with them, you can go and check them out, and their countenance was incredibly, uh, you know, different than any human alive yes. today. Yes. Um, and he says the, the, I just, I just quote this. It says the bones of these men are still shown to this very day, yes. unlike to any credible relations of other men. So, yes. you know, what Jesus Josephus says is is that these are very, very different than just you know just tall basketball players right i mean that's that's one of those Absolutely. theories that you hear from you know some of the uh i don't know the, the liberals or the the naysayers you know that yeah. well they were just kind of tall and all the the israelites were really really short yeah. back then and so they saw a guy who was seven feet tall and they were like oh no but yeah these are very different kind of yeah. creatures and, yeah and they would have to be engineered differently to carry the weight right mm-hmm. uh and otherwise they'd be just sideshow freaks yeah, uh, and that's yeah. clearly not what they were, and they were also known in a lot of uh, mythologies and, and and ancient history that was recorded uh, as the shining ones, just as angels are shining ones or opalescent beings, but they weren't quite the same type of shine. And so again, uh, not out of the Bible, but from other sources, and you'll see this again come up in entertainment as a reflection of of where that comes from in polytheism is is, is their eyes gloat. And again, uh, if you have an account out of uh, either Jewish uh, mythology uh, that Ginsberg writes about with uh, Noah and Lamech, and uh, also out of Enoch, it talks about Noah when he's born. He's a he's a, 
his eyes are glowing and it lights up the room and they think they're afraid because they think he's actually the offspring of angels. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So all of a sudden you have these, these shining beings that are, again, look and seem like a demigod. And uh, they, live for, they live for great ages. But again, as did the Adamites at that time. But I think what's different about what's going on with the Nephilim is, is that they are receiving the immortal spirit from the angels. And that's a violation against the laws of creation, which is why they end up being locked up in the abyss for that. Uh, as well as for helping destroy the earth, which is, I think, this is a big part. And also noting that, I always, I always like to point out, is that Genesis 6, talking about the giants, there's no separation between that and the flood narrative. It just rolls together in Genesis mm. 6, right? And I think it's there because they are a great part of the cause of the flood. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, it, to, from my reading, it seems like they are the principal cause. Yeah. I mean, human, humans obviously had some, you know, but humans chose to interact with these beings yes. and to thereby be corrupted. And, I, you know, I, I, your point is well made that the corruption is not just that people were not acting lawfully, but they were actually blending the DNA of two different species. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to come up with this, this hybrid species. Yeah, and if that immortal spirit was passed on, that now answers why God limits life to 120 years in Genesis 6. Perfect location for it. And I know people will talk about, well, that's the time that Noah preached to the uh, antediluvian world before the, uh, the, the flood. Except the Bible doesn't say that. They get that out of the book of Yasher, which is a little bit unreliable as a, as a source. Interesting, but a little bit unreliable. And you can't even make the math work in Genesis because you look at the time of the account of Noah and when how old he is um, and when his sons are born, you don't come up with 120 years. right? You're, you're like 100 years. That's the only thing you've got. So you would think that if that was going to be used in a different context than what it actually says, it should, would be clear that, you know, it would say that Noah preached for 120 years, but you can't make the math work by the information that you're given in the Bible. So I look that as, as it's written that um, his spirit wasn't going to be um, in, in the physical body uh, permanently, right? And that was the violation against creation was putting the immortal spirit of heaven into the physical body of the physical world. When do you see the 120 actually taking effect? Would Moses be the first person that lives to 120 yeah. and no longer? That's a that's a very good question, and uh, you know it, it doesn't seem to happen overnight, right? You just see not at all. That, <laughs> it right? takes a long time for it to it happen. It takes a long yeah. time for that to happen. Yeah, and uh, certainly after the flood, I mean Noah lives for 950 years, you know, and 350 years after the flood. So again, I think we, when we talk about the days of Noah, we have to consider what happened after the flood as important as before the flood when we look at that in a prophetic sense. Um, so yeah, it seemed to take about over time. And mm. again, that's not clear as to why that is, but it does get there, right? Mm -hmm. And less. And I think less because, you know, our, our corruption on the earth is, you know, it continued after the flood. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, yeah, well, this, <laughs> go on. I mean, this is, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. So now when you say, okay, that's, 
interesting. And now you can understand when you're when you're reading, let's say, uh, the Atlanta story uh, in Plato, or whether it's in Critias or in Timaeus, uh, that it's telling the same story where Prometheus goes to climbing. And, and copulates with her and has Nephilim sons, has five sets of twins for the ten kings that are going to rule Atlantis, right? Same story. And then all of a sudden, after a while, at first they rule judiciously, but then they start to lose their immortal spirit for some reason. And I think they're talking about you know intermarriage with humans, but for some reason they're starting to lose their immortal spirit. And when this happens, they become evil, and then they start to turn on human and war with, with each other, and the gods step in, and they destroy Atlantis in a very similar way that Enoch talks about the destruction of, uh, of uh, the antediluvian world with the flood. So what they'll talk about in, in polytheism is the flood is more than just the flood. It starts with uh, three, two or three stars, that whichever mythology you want to take it of, it's either two or three asteroids or stars out of Pleiades, that crashes into the ocean that starts uh, the, the start of the flood event, which cracks open the, uh, uh, the Earth's floor where the waters spring up, hmm. right? And then you have a conflagration of events like volcanoes and lightning and a whole bunch of other things, which uh, if you look, uh, and I'll make that known in the uh, Atlantis chapter, there's a number of references that sound like the flood catastrophe events that is a little bit wider than the Genesis account. And I find that very, very interesting. That there's maybe there's a possibility of a of a wider event than what is told in in the uh, Genesis account. But from a biblical perspective, to say that if that did happen in a larger way, here's where you would find that in the Bible. Yeah, I mean the Bible is incredibly Spartan about the details <laughs> of uh, Genesis one to eleven. I mean, yeah. it's almost like God's like, no, I just want to get to Abraham, but I guess people yeah. need to know the basics of what happened, you know. That's, I mean, that's seeming, that's seemingly yeah. it. Or there's been lost books, right? Well, fair enough, but you know, I, I'm assuming that God superintended the yeah. development of what we have today and sure i mean i think a lot of things were lost i'm just yep. bummed that you know <laughs> more of the 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 pre-flood stuff didn't make it in because it's so incredibly interesting but isn't it yeah i'm just gonna assume I'm that God in, yeah i mean you, you could just spend your lifetime there because it's so interesting to really understand but it's almost like god's like all right you guys don't need too much of this stuff you know i mean you kind of just get that that feeling a little bit but Okay, so we, we've come to the flood. Uh, that has a, a counter explanation in the Gnostic sources, etc. Um, wh what do they say about you know right after? I mean, they probably I'm sure they talk about the the Tower of Babel. Like, yeah. What's kind of next in the the Gnostic timeline? Well, from them, there's a, uh, a you know a start of a new civilization, right? And it's uh, not only humans, but uh, heavily being sourced by. Um, the demigods that survive and um, they're going to talk and again it's not all that consistent they're going to talk about other survival stories um, they're going to talk about other arcs they're going to talk about um, Amaka Seth uh, as one uh, is who's a real um, archetype of the Nephilim and the demigods who is going to be taken off world into a cloud and saved to repopulate you like this, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, 
after the flood. Um, and uh, so lots of different accounts. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, how, how would giants show up after the flood, there's not that many ways. So you either have them somehow on the ark, which I'm not a real fan of, but I do recognize it as a possibility. Uh, you know, Jewish legends will have odd, yep. like hanging on to the ropes. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Right? And Gnosticism will also have like two volcanoes, you know, hiding on the ark, just like you saw in the last Noah movie. So it was a heavily influenced Gnostic account. Um, and they will all. There's also a lot of people who believe that the genes were taken on by the wives. Again possibility um I, I and i recognize that as a possibility but not my favorite possibility because i just think the, the lines were pure and would have been including the wives to go on the uh on the ark but i, I cannot discount it because it's a possibility and we're not told how and then the other way would be uh on, on another ark or underground all again all about again all told in um in polytheism and then obviously the last one is going to be is second incursion. Um, again, they talk about that, and that's interesting because uh, I can wrap some of this together fairly quickly in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So this is the account that I'm sure your audience is aware that education likes to degrade the Noah account as being a copy or a corruption of the uh, account of the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh simply because the surviving stones are dated older than any surviving copies of, of the Bible, which is a ridiculous argument. It's just older. It doesn't mean it's a source document. So either then, the Gilgamesh account is a corruption of the biblical account from my perspective or a parallel story. Now, having said that, let's talk about the Gilgamesh uh, story. And, of course, it's 12 tablets, and there's several different stories, and the flood story is one of them. And Gilgamesh is telling the flood story uh, to and, and converses with a person called uh, Enkidu or Enkedin, depending on which translation that you're talking about. And when it's describing each of these two individuals, Gilgamesh is two-thirds God and one-third human, and so is Enkidu. And Gilgamesh is also from the Gnostic Book of the Giants of Enoch, is one of the giants that is mentioned when being warned of the flood. So we don't know whether he survives the flood with Apnopishan, who the flood story is being told about that Gilgamesh is talking about, or he's recreated after the flood in a second incursion. But certainly Enkidu is created after the flood as a second incursion to offset the horribleness and the tyrant Gilgamesh, because he's just running rampant. But they become friends. Doesn't doesn't stay as as enemies very long, and Enkidu actually finds out Gilgamesh is stronger. But they're telling about they're now talking about the story of Upnapishtim or Zayazudra, depending on which translation out of ancient history you want to use for a name. And he is also two thirds god, one third human, an archetypical king of that time, or a Nephilim of that time, or an Anunnaki of that time, and he is a horrible tyrant just as all the nephilim were and he takes on the ark his relatives we're not told i'm sure we're told i just don't remember the call but all of his close relatives so this is a completely different story that's being told in noah one is about human survival one is about nephilim survival right so on the macro level the details are kind of same the same but when you get into the details, that's where the devil is. 
And so you can't reconcile the two stories. They're just different from the length of the flood to how, how many animals are on the flood or on the ark, how long it takes to build the ark, completely different. What it is is a recanting, true or otherwise, of their justification or how Nephilim survived the flood. And in there you get an ark survival story and you get um, a second incursion account. Just as when you get into Greek mythology, you have Deucalion and Pyrrha, as they typically will say are the Greek Noah, right, in the Greek account, except that in that ark story that they say is based on the Noah story is just misdirection because Deucalion is son of Prometheus. Prometheus in Greek mythology is both Titan and God. And in Greek mythology, you can have a Titan god and a Titan demigod. But whether or not Deucalion is the son of Prometheus the Nephilim or Prometheus the god, doesn't matter. Deucalion is still Nephilim. And Pyrrha has a whole bunch of different names in these accounts, especially in the Gnosticism, that will include names like Norea. And then they'll do other variations of that that actually will take it back Nama. And of course, Nama is the other one of King or Lamech's progeny that is listed in, in um, Genesis on the lineage of Cain without any sort of description as to her connection. But in Gnosticism and in other accounts, she likes to readily marry giants. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So but the I other. Parallel accounts or corruptions of the biblical account, and you have everybody has yeah. to make their own decision on that. So, I mean, the Bible seems very clear that everything that had breath under heaven yeah. died. So, if the Gilgamesh account is, in fact, a somewhat true account of how the how the Nephilim survived, then it would seem to contradict what the Bible is saying. Yeah, except that what the Bible actually says, if you want to get really uh, technical on it in uh, chapter six and seven, it will say God's going to destroy everything he created. Uh. Right. So if you want to get legalistic and, and I'm not always sure you should do that, um, <laughs> well, um, sure. but you can make an argument there, uh, which okay. sort of graze it up again, I suppose. Um, but when you look at how the Nephilim are created, that comes from fallen angels and human females. And we do know that somehow they're before and after the flood. So again, we're not told exactly how this happens, which is you know, frustra frustrating for people like myself. But again, because I'm a contrarian, and I, and I do not believe the Bible ever contradicts itself. Yeah, I, I completely agree there. <laughs> Absolutely. I look at every angle to see how, in which way this could go, and I'm mixed on that statement in terms of, uh, the survival. I, I, you know, I think the easiest way is is another ark that they're forewarned as they are in, in, in the polytheist accounts. But a second incursion out of spite, as some theologians will say, took place. And that could have taken place at Sodom and Gomorrah as well, because mm -hmm. that's where the seed of the, uh, the demigods are replanted. And those weren't cities of uh, darkness and sexual violation in the Gnostic accounts. There were cities of light mm. and the first civilizations of light after the flood. So again, they have a whole different account. And that's why another reason why they say our God is evil, because he destroyed this city of light and city of Nephilim, right? Uh -huh. 
but it would certainly make more sense that Nephilim were there and involved because of the horrible destruction that does happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, more than just the corruptions that were given in the Bible. But we're not told they're there. But we do know in Genesis 14, in the war of four kings against five, the time of Abraham, this is a war that is listing pretty much all Nephilim and Nephilim hybrid nations, right? Whether it's Horites uh, or the Amorites or the uh, Avim, this is this is a campaign against giants that goes beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. But so we understand that giants are in the neighborhood of Sodom and Gomorrah at the time of Abraham. Um, and uh, and at the time of uh, Sodom and the Gomorrah and the, and the destruction. And also, we have this interesting event that starts to happen at Babel as well, uh, which is a frustratingly stingy account for us. Um, but what's interesting is, is that, again, um, if you look at some of the language in there, there's some things in there that are puzzling, like, what do you mean by acting as one people and having one language, paraphrasing that there's literally nothing humankind can't do, right? That's an amazing statement right there. It really is. Yeah. So when I learned, and it, and it just went on like a light bulb, of Freemasonic accounts of Babel, and we talk about the sciences and that, all of a sudden some some lights go on and some linkages come on. And so their account of Babel is that uh, Nimrod is, uh, he partners with a, a fellow called Hermes, which is a huge patriarch of polytheism. And Hermes discovers two pillars, pillars manufactured either by Enoch, son of Cain, or Lamech, because they have two different legends on this, where it has all of the knowledge of the seven sacred sciences and mysticism that they can put on these pillars. And the other one has the location of these nine volts I was talking about before, of the books of Enoch. Mm. And he finds them, and he goes to the pyramid that they're hidden under in Egypt and brings them back to Babel, and they start the development of the seven sacred sciences again. And if you understand the connection that I was talking about earlier about how they believe how advanced the society was, and now we understand that the fifth science is what they're going to apply at Babel, which is geometry or masonry. And then we add in the information that Freemasons believe Nimrod is the first grand master of Freemasonry after the flood. He wrote the first constitution for them after the flood. And Babel City and Babel Tower was the first manifestation of building these great monuments like they did in the antediluvian epoch. And all of a sudden, you get an understanding why Nimrod is located in and around the Babel story. And you get possibly some answers to why Babel was stopped. And if you understand that Nimrod leaves after Babel, after the dispersion and the confusion of the languages to start in uh, Chaldea, and uh, the Akkadians and other people come from them, there's another interesting connection here. And uh, most people understand Babel coming out of Hebrew as confusion of languages, right? Confusing the languages. But Akkadians, in their account, they translate Babel as Bab-El. El being God and Bab being gateway or stargate, mm -hmm. putting together. And so one wonders where they're trying to create some sort of uh, gateway to the abyss to get 
the impassioned angels fallen out because I do believe angels can still go back and forth, even the ones that weren't in prison, and only the impassioned ones were in prison. So there's another possibility of what they're trying to do with that tower because any reasonable person understands that they can't build it up to reach heaven. You can do it as in an allegorical manner, and you can talk about other accounts where it has Nimrod uh, doing great speeches on the tower against God and imposing mysticism and threatening God. If he ever steps out of bound again, he's going to shoot an arrow into the sky and slay him. Those aren't plausible. Those are allegories, right? Those are sort of the speeches from the walking dead. But that tower is not going to reach into the sky. So they had to be doing it for some other reason. What that reason is is all speculative, but uh, I think there's more to the story than that. But all of a sudden now, it makes a little bit more sense what's going on. And Nimrod is associated in so many other accounts as co-opting giants to help build Babel as well. So again, now you have giants that are cooperating with humans, even though Nimrod would have warred with other uh, humans or other uh other giants at that time. So just an interesting little take on it. Doesn't make it true, but it certainly is some context as you read Genesis and you say like, you know, maybe that does make some sense out of how humans, you know, could uh, do anything if they have one language. So, wow. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, we're kind of over time, but I just wanted to keep going because it's <laughs> such good stuff. I would like to get you back on if, if I can, you know, have the honor. Uh, Cause I think we just have, I think we're just scratching the surface, it sounds like, and uh, this is fantastic. We do have a few questions yep. uh, here in the chat room. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. One of these looks like it's, uh, let's see, uh, this is from uh, Siafra. How can we glean the truth if there is any from these Gnostic writings, Doug? Um, so I'm not sure if that question is related to me yeah. or to you, but um, I guess just you know, quickly my perspective, I mean, I, I think nothing is, is ever 100% wrong or 100% right, except the Bible, of course. The Bible's yeah. 100% right. But, you know, all the other writings, they always contain some truth, okay? The, the challenge of using any Gnostic source is to know what is true and what is false, right? But that's what Satan has been doing from the beginning. He always tells a truth with a lie, and that's what makes it so yeah. incredibly difficult to get through. That's what he did in the garden. He said, yeah. you won't die, but the, this tree is going to make you you know, uh, your eyes open, and so, it did. Yeah. My advice so. is this, and it's it's exactly that, is, is do not read this stuff unless your faith is strong and you measure everything against the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that anything that strays from the Bible, if it's not absolutely consistent and isn't written in the Bible, then you ought to say, recognize that and not let that pollute your thought process. Well said. It's very, very important. Mm -hmm. And again, that's why in the book I try and keep everything measured against what the Bible says. But for me, it was very interesting to understand how they think. Yeah, well said. Uh, Victor Rosas asks, he says, are all the fallen angels male or both gender? Well, one presumes in, um, in heaven they have no gender. Uh, there is no marriage, as Matthew 22.30 says. Um, but we also understand that somehow they take different forms in the physical world. So if they can do that, then they could probably choose their gender in this world, if they so chose to. Uh, we don't get 
much of that, if we don't get any female accounts that I'm aware of in the Bible. There's one about a stork uh, uh, in the Old Testament uh, carrying uh, in a basket, but uh, that's a that's that's a, a bit of a stretch to to extend that. But if you accept that they have some sort of changeling quality, because they come in different forms, uh, and cer- and certainly Satan has different forms. Uh, then that's a possibility. And if they can do that, then they could choose their sex. And again, if you get into Jewish mythology or Kabbalism, they certainly believe that for sure. That's not biblical. I'm going to come back to a biblical aspect in a second, though. And uh, But it does answer the fact if they can take a gender of their choosing, then they could also create lower gods in this world between themselves. And that could answer the question of the male-female pantheon that inundates polytheism, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Now, if you go into Jude 1.6, uh, and you have the word, they left uh, their, their habitation, right? Um, and if you take that back to the Greek word, that's oiketarian, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's only one other place where that word is used in uh, taken back to Oikatarian in um, the New Testament, and that is in Second Corinthians five two. two. They're, That's very good. They're, talking, they're yeah. talking about the heavenly house, and then if you look, so you understand that um, from the meaning that's translated as Oikatarian, it's a dwelling place for the spirit. Right. So then when you start entering in some of the different clothings of heaven, clothing of the earth, you understand that if they're spirit bearing beings and they're coming into the physical world and taking a shape, they need a dwelling place for the spirit. And if they can put on the clothes of heaven and take them off, as it also says in first Corinthians, or is it second Corinthians? I'd have to double check that now. Uh, second Corinthians chapter five. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So on just, 2 Corinthians 5, then they could put on any set of clothing that they wanted in this realm. So again, all I'm trying to do is say, how is it possible that they could, A, have sex and have a form to have sex if there's no marriage in heaven? And if that's the case, then what else could they do? And then we understand that they left their habitation, which is a dwelling place for the spirit, and uh, they're... uh, um, taking a form here and they need a dwelling place for the spirit, they come in some sort of physical form, I think that's a possible connection. It's tenuous, um, but it, it might answer some of those questions from a scriptural perspective. Fascinating. Do you think it's all possible, this is my question, but do you think it's all possible that that the Nephilim may have been sort of a, a bio suit that they wanted to create uh, so that it would be an actual you know, human fallen angel hybrid kind of body that they themselves could then inhabit. Yeah, except that, you know, we don't, I mean, there's an avatar concept, right? And there's a demon concept, right? Mm -hmm. So you have an avatar concept, which is an angelic from uh, really deep into mysticism of uh, angels possessing the bodies, right? Um, And controlling the bodies. But typically you have a demon concept as in the new testament where even jesus is you know removing demons and legion is the most famous one right um and so angels don't need a body because they can make their own if you accept that premise right Mm. but demons after their bodies die out because if their spirit in the first generation was immortal but their bodies weren't 
they eventually die, and in other accounts, some of them actually commit suicide. Um, to, to relieve of the pain, their spirits were not permitted to go to sleep, and they're not permitted to go to heaven. And so these are the beings that want bodies to mm-hmm. possess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would make that distinction, um, but I also recognize that, again, from a we don't get angels in the Bible possessing bodies, but we have demons, right? So I think the demons are, are distinctly different, and they're talked about differently in the Bible than what angels are. And angels are beings, as you said, created from fire and are immortal, but demons are just this sort of demon spirit and of the realm and led by Satan. But they're just a distinct class. But again, if we link Genesis 6, we link Enoch, we link uh, what Jesus talks about, um, that only the worst of the demons were locked in the abyss with the impassioned fallen angels and the rest are here to roam the earth, then it starts to make some sense, I think. Okay. Was I clear enough on that? Yeah. In fact, that answers Sifra's uh, uh, question. Um, just for the record, I, I kind of see it a little bit differently just kind of based on some linguistics, but but that's okay. Sifra, if you um, want to check out what on my website, you can just look at uh, fallen angels or demons. Uh, I, I very much appreciate what Gary has to say. None of us knows absolutely, and so uh, I think it's a very fun, fun question. Um, let's see here. What is the next question? Let me just go ahead and um, here's a question. Uh, do you think this type of information has anything to do with the Great Commission? <laughs> well, that's a that's a fair question. So Sefer is asking, you know, if this kind of stuff that we're talking about has anything to do with the Great Commission. What do, what do you think, Gary? Well, first of all, let's define uh, for me what the Great Commission is. Is that we're talking about Adam or are we talking about something else? Well, I suppose she's talking about Matthew 28, 18 there, where, you know, Jesus says, go into all the all the world, you know, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to command all the things that I've commanded you. Yeah, so I guess that's why I wanted to be sure, because I'll, I'll talk about both. So what we're talking about, I think, is part of Matthew, where we're talking about things as we go into the end time, where things are a little bit better understood, because the times that we're going to be heading into require the information to come out. And no one person has all of the answers, and I, you know, I certainly don't claim that, and I don't claim to be a prophet of anything, and I don't predict anything. I may say I think this might happen, but I'm, we're, I'm just here to, um, as what so many people are doing these days, is, is getting the knowledge out so that we can better understand what's in the Bible, what it really means, and where, what it's meaning going into the end time. Now, if you're also going to refer back to the Great Commission of Adam, I mean, he is there. Uh, is, is created so that humankind at a future time is going to be raised above angels, right? Mm-hmm. So this has a complete impact on that, even though, you know, God knows right from the beginning uh, what's going to happen. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve are given free choice in in Eden, and, you know, life, they make a bad choice. And so now we're going to have to go through the curses of that bad choice to have ourselves eventually raised above angels, just as Israel, you know, they violate their covenant, and so the destiny of humankind and Israel are now going to be carried out through the curses of the covenant and not the blessings of the covenant, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still going to happen, but 
as part of that whole sort of journey at some point in time in the future world that we're raised above angels, that is, to me, um, the essential promise of, of uh, Adam and the essential promise of the Bible. And I don't believe that the angels thought that they could overthrow God because uh, they know he's omnipotent. They walked amongst them. Um, I think they were trying to get a different realm. That's why you see that again in polytheist lit literature, whether it's Star Wars or whatever, that they're trying to fight for their freedom and live by themselves away from the evil empire, which mm. they call Christianity and God, right? Same same allegory, same story um, that they like to tell over and over and over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> but <laughs> but what is important is is that they don't tell humans they can't win right they tell them that they can that's how they get deceived but angels when we understand that they know that they can't win um they are uh very very clearly looking for some other sort of settlement right and so what they didn't i don't think anticipated uh in event of getting that realm was the resurrection hmm. I don't think they anticipated that. And that's also why I believe in Peter, where uh, Jesus goes to the spirits. He actually goes to the abyss, mm -hmm. in my conclusion, uh, and tells them, the impassioned ones and the most evil of the demons, that your rebellion's over. I am rising on Sunday morning, and it's done. Humankind will not be enslaved. They will not be obliterated. They, their inheritance will not... Uh, go unfulfilled that they were promised, and through me, they will be raised above you. Mm, nice. Uh, very good insights. And, you know, this question is one of those that we get uh, a lot, uh, whether in prophecy or really any field within the Bible itself. And I, I think it's it's really coming from a misunderstanding because there's this idea that, well, well, the only thing that we're supposed to do is kind of go out there, hit the streets and get people saved, you know? And, you know, while obviously we're into that, you know, and I've done, you know, street evangelism, et cetera, but I, th I think it's, it, it falls short. And I'm just thinking about uh, new tribes mission. Uh, they're a, a ministry that goes, you know, into these, let's call them primitive civilizations, if you will. And, you know, they're going to share the gospel. But in order to share the gospel, to share the good news, what do they do? They, they take about two or three months and they start way back with, you know, the, with Adam and Eve. And they kind of go up to the flood, then Abraham and all the way until finally they finally get to Jesus. And then they finally get to his betrayal by Judas and Peter and then his death and then his resurrection. And when they take that time to teach the people, then you see an almost always 100% acceptance of this good news. And I think sometimes, you know, we're such a microwave society that we just want the, the little snippet and, you know, one easy sentence, right? We want kind of the, what can you do? Uh, in a nutshell, and we we want it so quick, so palatable right now, without any of the background. And I think that background really helps us to understand, appreciate, and to to even keep living in the the reality of the good news when we have the whole story. You don't need it absolutely, but when we have those details, it really helps us to appreciate and understand what is going on. And I think that's what also what you were taught. You were hitting on there, Gary. 
Yeah, I think you know, um, if you to, to better understand and appreciate what happens in the rest of the Bible, you need to understand Genesis. Hmm. Uh, it's it's almost the Rosetta Stone to understand, you know, the mixed metaphors, but to understand uh, what's going on in, in, in the rest of the Bible. It, it just forces you to go back to understand about the Holy Covenant, about Israel, about, well, I guess that's more in Exodus, but um, the start of Israel with Abraham, about the flood, about these giants, about uh, uh, the, the sons of God in Genesis 6, that obviously... It's there because they're playing an important, influential role on what happens to humankind. And to understand why all of this has happened, and it requires the word being sent from Jesus and redeeming the world from our sins. It just tells you why that has, it was all leading up to that. Well said. A uh, question here from Ozzy bin Oswald. He says, any relation between Epimetheus Prometheus and Methuselah. Uh, you know, I've not seen a, a direct connection connecting Prometheus with Methuselah. Um, Methuselah is typically not sort of connected into um, um, other mythologies, uh, but Prometheus is more of a either an Azazel or Azazel or a Lucifer or a Satan type character. Uh, he is the bringer of fire or the bringer of light and the bringer of technology and knowledge, just as they credit, uh, you know, Satan as doing, but more specifically, Azaziel. And I think Azaziel is probably more who Prometheus is as opposed to Lucifer. But the light allegory kind of applies to, to Lucifer. So, no, I wouldn't, I would not uh, look at uh, Prometheus as, 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 uh, as Methuselah. All right. Uh, <clears throat> question from Arthur Monk. Why weren't the pyramids mentioned in the Bible? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a you know, really good question. But, you know, again, in, um, you know, before the flood, there's, there's very little mentioned before the flood, right? So we don't get uh, a lot of detail here, and we don't get any detail on the other civilizations except where Noah was part of. That's all we get, which most... People kind of think we're the Sumerians and the Blackheads, but um, and, but who knows? It might not even been them, but that's kind of what people sort of presume on it. So after the flood, um, now you have the talk of you know Israel in Egypt and being sort of raised in Egypt, but you don't really get talked about the pyramids, but you do get told about the religion, and the, the religion of the pyramids is, is all part of the mystical religions. And the building of these megaliths that we're talking about you know, are all part of that. And one presumes that the enslavement of Israel was utilized to build these, these, these megaliths and monuments, um, even though they may have been not as good a quality as the ones that were built previously. Um, so um, it's interesting. We do hear about Heliopolis, the city of the sun, which is the center of this mystical religion. And there are several other names that will be used to refer to that area where um, uh, we're talking about where the Israelites are located, and even to the effect that Moses would have been educated at Heliopolis as well, became, being adopted into the, the royal family. And of course, Heliopolis is, is where the the, uh, the the priests are developing the seven sciences, and that's where later on, after 
the, the Nimrod Constitution that I talked about, you're going to have the Great White Brotherhood, Tutmosis the Third, as I recall, um, um, rejuvenates this Constitution uh, and calls it the Great White Brotherhood. So you get all of that in there, but you don't get the actual buildings. And, and, and I'm not sure why, but I'm not sure it's always pertinent to uh, the biblical story that they have to give exact descriptions of these things that they're doing to honor the pantheon of gods. Yeah. And just keep in mind, everyone, that the Bible is is essentially it's the story of redemption. You know, that's that's the big overarching story. And if God were to have included all these details, which we wish he would have, but uh, this thing would be a lot thicker than it is today. So uh, we're, we're probably glad in some ways that it's not any bigger. It's not a history book. It's it's a book for uh, a people and their faith and their covenant and their tribulations thereof. Mm hmm. Yep. And it's designed to help them on that journey and those grafted in, like myself, hopefully, <laughs> at least that's what I believe, um, and I know it's true because it says that in the Bible, uh, to help us on our journey. But it's not a history document. It's about right. faith. Yeah, yeah, it's very selective in, in what it does. What it does say, it's true, but it's for selective. Last question, this is from uh, Mr. E3000. He says, do you think fallen angels still exist on Earth and appear in human form? And is the transhumanist agenda to create avatars for the demons to inhabit? Yeah, so some very good questions in there. So I don't believe all of the fallen angels went into the abyss all the ones who rebelled, only the impassioned ones or maybe the most corrupt ones or ones who did other things that might have corrupted the earth would have been locked in there. And so if we take from revelations that there are 100 million angels, and there may be more, but in there we're told there's 100 million, and a third of them rebelled, there was a lot of angels that rebelled, some 33 million by the math. Uh, and if only the impassioned ones and the most evil ones were put in the abyss, that means there's fallen angels that are still interacting with us today and influencing us. So, yes, I believe that they're still here and affecting us just based on connecting those dots. Now, transhumanism, cloning, bionic parts, uh, eugenics, anything to do with genetics is the greater Nephilim concept. DNA manipulation. It's a greater Nephilim concept that I believe that they're doing. And so uh, if you accept the idea that we had talked about earlier that demons require and want a body so that they can better interact in this physical world because they're never going to get into the heavenly realm, they will require a body. So you either have to possess one and continue to fight that, or you have humans develop, clone, make bodies for them to take uh, to possess. That's all speculation, but it certainly falls into that greater Nephilim concept. It's a Superman, a superhero of uh, a different format than the exact de definition of sons of God copulating with human females, right? Well said. Right. Yeah. I just want to encourage everybody uh, to get his book. Uh, you can first check it out at Genesis6Conspiracy.com. Uh, he's got a lot of information there, so you can learn more about the book. And he also tells you where you can get it. Uh, so you can, of course, get that at Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's on a number of different places. So uh, you can get it directly from him, and he'll even sign a copy for you. So that's a pretty good deal. 
uh, just encourage everybody to do that. Obviously, Gary has put a lot of work into this book, um, and it's just it's phenomenal. Gary, I just want to thank you for writing this book because you have blown us away with all of the information. Uh, and we've only scratched the surface, of course. There's uh, obviously a ton more, and it, it shows from all that you were sharing with us. But, um, you know, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your insights, for your sharing your research. And, uh, again, everyone, get his book. It's fantastic. Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Just a plethora of information. And I want to encourage everybody, stay in the Word, all right? Stay in the Word. The Bible has the answers. The Bible, as Gary said, it's not a history book. It's not a world history book, all right? But it gives you the history that we need to know in relation to how did we get this screwed up? Uh, what's God going to do about it? And how do we live a righteous life in front of our God? Because he tells us all the things that we need to do and what not to do. So uh, it's a, it's just a fantastic book, uh, the Bible. And Gary's is pretty good, too. Uh, it's not quite <laughs> as good as the Bible, but it's an awfully good book. And he puts together no comparison. a comparison. No, there's no comparison. No, no, I know. No. I know. much better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, right after the Bible, you should get Gary's book. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you again, Gary, for, for all that you shared with us. And everyone, just stay in the Word. Uh, that has the answers, and we want to just thank you all for tuning in. God bless.